This morning what we're going to do is talk about tragedy by looking at one of the greatest tragedies in the Old Testament and then looking at the greatest tragedy ever, which would be the crucifixion of the Son of God. Uh, and so that's the plan for the day. You might be thinking, why are we talking about tragedy? It's the first Sunday of the year. Didn't you know that, Pastor? Um, actually, that's why we're talking about tragedy, because it's the first Sunday of the year and there's a new year ahead of us. And uh, I won't do this every year. I think I did it last year also, different sermon. Um, life is great. Life is wonderful if you're living, and yet life is filled with tragedies. And we are living tragedies because we're living in a broken world, living broken lives. And if we don't know that, it's pretty hard to exist. It's pretty hard to function and to function in a way that would be livable, in a way that would honor the Lord and, and encourage other people. So we're going to look at one of the greatest tragedies. You're familiar with it. Uh, everyone knows the story uh, of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis 37. So if you want to go there, you're familiar with the great tragic story of Joseph. But there's a good possibility you're not familiar with the theology behind it and how God is involved in His sovereignty and God is in control. And that's really the punchline. We have to see that. Uh, we're familiar with the tragedies of our lives. And we're familiar to one degree or another with the, the tragic death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, we're not always familiar with the theology behind that. And so that's the plan for the morning. It's all designed to encourage you as a pastor to help you live life uh, successfully in a way that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ, be encouraging to you, encouraging to other people. Um, so what we'll do is we'll look at Genesis 37, then I think we'll go to Genesis 45, then we'll go to Genesis 50 for kind of the punchline, um, and then we'll talk about some of the impl implications, some application. Um, how do we interpret these things? How do we apply these things? And then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. So, sound like a plan? can't wait to talk about these things, put things into perspective. In Genesis 37, we learn of Joseph, and really the, the remainder of Genesis is about Joseph in one way or another, um, and the life that is his tragic life, and yet it's not so tragic in another sense. Um, again, we're all familiar with it. I said to my sons this morning, I'm going to talk about Joseph today. I don't have any particular word for you to write down, but we're going to talk about Joseph, not the husband of Mary, Joseph, but, and one of my sons said, the coat, the guy with the coat. I said, yeah, the guy with the coat. Um, and that's kind of how we think of Joseph as the guy with the coat. Um, but I hope today you'll think of him a little bit differently. It won't be the only thing you think of. It won't be the main thing you think of. Um, and you'll, you'll be encouraged by the guy with the coat. Um, What's interesting is, is after this point in time, what, we're, what we see uh, as far as a pattern in the Old Testament would be again and again and again you have these, these deliverer types because Joseph is a deliverer type and you have these um, rescuers, people at the right place at the right time. They're not perfect people and yet God uses them and it's all ultimately looking forward to Christ who would be the ultimate deliverer. Uh, and so I won't be surprised if you see some kinds of similarities. Um, but just so you're aware, um, we see a pattern beginning uh, starting here. We are going to read the, the whole 
37th chapter. And so I'll do my best to read and you do your best to follow along and we'll set things up. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Joseph loved, now Israel, Jacob that would be, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this my dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were uh, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Mistake, right? <laughs> he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks, their father's flocks, near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. 
Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Super straightforward. First, the desire is to murder. Well, first, it's hatred, jealousy, desire to murder, plotting to murder. Then, well, let's at least make some money in the deal. Let's sell them into slavery. And then deception and lies and the web is a complicated one. It's an evil one. It's terrible. It's awful. It's sinful. Right? Well, then, we're not going to take the time to read all of these chapters or we would never be done. But then we start moving our way through 38, 39, the Joseph Potiphar's wife incident in 39, and we get to 40, and Joseph interprets a couple of dreams. Then 41, things start to get really interesting because Joseph interprets dreams for Pharaoh. And he lets Pharaoh know that he is dreamt of a coming famine, a devastating famine. In fact, just to pick up a few verses so you can see, chapter 41 and verse 25, um, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 29, there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 30 in chapter 41 says, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. It's devastating. In fact, it says at the very end of verse 31, it'll be very severe. Verse 36 of chapter 41, that food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that there are uh, 
that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. That's the idea. That's the solution. So a dream, interpretation of the dreams, a plan, a wise plan. Otherwise it would be massive death, casualty. And then we see Joseph rise to power for his interpretation, for his wisdom. Uh, How about verse, still chapter 41, how about verse 39? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. Verse 40, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land over all the land of Egypt. So it's an amazing story. It's an interesting story. We're already seeing that there was something bad and evil and now it seems to be positive. Um, the famine comes. Devastation happens. Um, at the very end of verse 56, for the famine was severe, it basically unfolds the way it was prophesied. Then in verse 42, Jacob, the father, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. So, he's going to send word there. They need to go there and buy so they can live. How about verse 6? Now Joseph was governor over the land. So you see what's happening. Got to go there to get food. Little do they know that brother sold into slavery is now the man. He's in charge. So let's look at verse 45. We'll look at 10 or so verses here. Then we'll look at the theological punchline. But really, the theological punchline is already going to show up in chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself. Okay, so his brothers are before him. They don't, know, they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. He could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from here. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Maybe I'm just going to put my finger there for a second. Remember, so if he sold into slavery at like age 17, um, and now all of these years have passed, uh, he's going to look different even. You know, not to mention what he's wearing and all of that, but um, I don't remember how old he is at this point in time. There's a cool chart if you have an ESV study Bible that kind of indicated his ages, if he's like 70 by now or what the age, or 50 by now, I don't remember what it was. It's irrelevant. They don't recognize him. That's the relevant part. I should stick to my notes. <laughs> we do know how old he is when he dies, and that's at the end. Anyway, so let's, let's move on. Verse 2, And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Right? Uh... 
So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Here we go. This is worth underlining. Even if you only underline like once a year in your Bible, this is worth it. But if you only do once a year, save it. It's going to get better. Okay, But this is worth it. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Evil. God sent me before you to preserve life. God's using me as a kind of deliverer, as a lowercase s savior. We'll talk more about the theology of that in just a little while, but, but that's so crucial uh, that we see that. Verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, And God sent me before you. So here it is again, just to be clear. God sent me before you to preserve, right? That's a, that's a salvation kind of term. For you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now that's not even a true statement, is it? Well, it actually is true. But what does he mean? He knows full well they sent him there. The point is, ultimately, who was in charge, right? Sort of like David when he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. That's not true. He sinned against all kinds of people, right? The person he murders, his wife, the person he commits adultery with. I mean, all... But the point is, ultimately, I've sinned against you, God. Well, his brothers sent him into slavery. Ultimately, those brothers aren't in charge. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the caretaker, if you will, to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God, here it is again, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. God is in charge. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. How ironic. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and your eyes of my brother Benjamin see, the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. And we can stop in this chapter for now. What's also happening, and we're not going to get into the details of this, but as we're looking at this preservation and this uh, lowercase s savior and that sort of thing, remember God has made promises to preserve a people and to make, a, make make them a great nation. and Well, 
This all complements that. We can't have the annihilation of the people if God, starting with Abraham, is going to make them a great nation. So this is just part of the unfolding of the, of the plan. Reminds me of Esther. Esther's at the right place at the right time. Um, there's all sorts of questions about Esther and who, what was she doing and why was she there. And, but she's at the right place at the right time so that the Jews are not annihilated because God's going to be faithful to his promises and ultimately have an ultimate deliverer who will be a Jew. This reminds me of that. Now let's go to one more text. And it's Genesis 50. I think in about every Bible I use very often or own, I write, in Genesis 50, I write C37, C45. And then in 37, C45, C50. And then in 45, C37 and C50. Hopefully you have a better memory than I do, um, but I want to be able to work my way around the major points, and we're looking at the major points uh, today. Now let's look. Beginning in verse 15. So now things are coming to an end. This is chapter 50, closing out the book. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, this is Jacob, sometimes called Israel, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back. Oh, I want to stop there just for a second. If you remember way back when, when Joseph reveals himself almost without pause, almost without period or comma, how's my dad? Right? It's no surprise that even though these years have passed, the brothers are thinking to themselves, now that dad's gone, you know? might be it for us it might be the only reason we've been living is because our father's been living it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil I underlined the evil and you'll see why I think you should too all godly people do um <laughs> all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression. I underlined that as well. The transgression, that's a word for sin, of your brothers and their sin. Just to be clear, I underlined that because they did evil, underline worthy, to you. We've got evil, transgression, sin, and evil again. Let's keep going. And now, please forgive the transgression, underline worthy, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, got some underlined worthy words here, you meant evil against me. More words, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And they went, (sighs) right? We're going to live. Now, the reason for my strange deliverance regarding underlining is because now we're explicitly seeing the theology of it. How God has worked behind this. And you you have to see it. It's so crucial when it comes to your view of God and even your ability to trust Him. In verse 15, we have something that's called evil because it is. It's called transgression and sin in verse 17. It's also called evil again in that verse. And transgression again in verse 17. Verse 20, evil again. And then make sure you see in verse 20, God meant it. What is it referring to? It's referring to evil. God meant it, their evil, for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive. A greater purpose is the idea. It may very well be that that does not align with your view of God. But I so badly wanted to. Evil is real. Sin is real. Transgressions are real. But there's more to it than what we see. Okay, we, we live tragic lives. We do tragic things to other people. Hopefully not these things. Other people do tragic things to us. Hopefully not these things. But to quote Jesus, in this life you will have trouble. Life is filled with it. But let's see things the way God wants us to see things. Let's not have the tragedy of reading a historical narrative without seeing the theology underneath it, behind it, surrounding it. Your life is going to be so messed up if that's true. I mean, how about this? Your life and my life are going to be messed up anyway, right? Broken world, sinful world, sin-cursed earth. But to not understand God and how God is working for His children is potentially even more tragic. 
So, some practical things. Just a short list. The first thing you want to make sure you know and see is that God is sovereign. Okay? Not lowercase s sovereign. (laughs) That God is capital S sovereign. Sovereign being the word for a king. Okay? But Christians use it, and Christians have used it for a long time, and they talk about God's sovereignty. Yes, He's the king, but He's the ultimate king, but He's not a... He's not an impotent king. He's the king of kings. He is the ruler who has all of the power in the world. He can do anything He wants, effortlessly. He's sovereign. The idea typically is He's in charge and He's in control. And His will prevails. Sovereignty of God. It's the most troubling thing imaginable if you don't like God. It's the most troubling thing imaginable if you think you're sovereign. But it's the most comforting thing in the world if you belong to Him through His Son. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. But you've you got to see the sovereignty thing. It creates questions for us. I think there are answers to some of the questions. <laughs> Other ones, I don't really know. But God is sovereign over all, even evil. Is God the author of evil? I didn't say that. Nor does our text say that. But God is sovereign over all things. The Joseph account shows us even evil to bring about a greater purpose. So again, this isn't that hard to apply in your life. It's crucial that you've got the, 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 the right view of God. world is filled with tragedy. God is sovereignly in charge, accomplishing greater purposes, even through evil people. It's critical that we get that. How about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11? You can write it down. You can look it up if you'd like to. I'm just going to reference it. God works all things after the counsel of His will. All things after the counsel of His will. Everything that happens, He's in charge of. Now, maybe just a little bit more to... Hmm, it's one of those things, you know? How much can we talk about? Let's move on. After we look at one passage. <laughs> Let's look at Acts 3 and 4.
Acts is in the New Testament. It's after the four gospel accounts. So we've looked at one of the greatest tragedies in the Old Testament. One of the most familiar. The greatest tragedy in the Old Testament is in the garden. Or none of this would ever happen. We looked at one of the greatest ones, one of the classic ones, classic texts. But the greatest tragedy ever, 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 greatest, greater than any tragedy you will experience, the greatest wrongdoing ever committed against anyone is not the wrongdoings that you will commit or will be committed against you. The greatest wrongdoing ever would be what? The crucifixion of the Son of God. And that was not a case of bad luck either. But we sometimes live and think as if it were when we deny God's sovereignty. So let's look at Acts chapter 3. Just a sampling. Uh, How about Acts 3 verse 13? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Oh, we were just learning about Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. That's the worst kind of sin. When he had decided to release him. Even he did that. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Tragedy of tragedies. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. But don't stop there. How about chapter 4, verse 27? So, atrocious, horrific, horrendous, incomparable kind of sin, tragedy. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Oh, how about verse 28? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Oh, interesting. I don't know how it all works. People try to explain how it all works. But what I do know and what you can know is terrible, terrible, terrible things happen. In fact, the most terrible thing happened. But God works all things after the counsel of His will. And what was intended for evil, God intended for good. We learn that from Genesis. I hope what's happening is you're, you're being encouraged if you know these things. Good reminders. If you don't know these things, I hope you're being encouraged, ultimately. 
But if it takes it in the meantime, I hope it's just... doing wonders for your view of God. (laughs) So number one, God is sovereign. He's totally sovereign, even over evil sovereign. Number two, God is for His people. God is for His people. We won't go there right now, but we see it, we see it in Genesis. I, I, when, since we read from um, Romans earlier, I'm thinking of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God is for us, according to Romans 8. He's for us in His Son. So if, if you belong to God through faith in His Son, God is for you. So that, that's why in Romans 8.28, it can say, all things work together for the good of those who love Him him and those who have been called according to his purposes. All things, including the suffering, and chapter 8 is filled with suffering. So even the suffering is working together for Pat's good, somehow, I don't know how, for my good. And how about this? It ultimately lands me in the place of, Romans 8 says, glorification. It's going to happen. It's sure to happen. So I want you to be encouraged by that. I want you to know that. A, a friend of mine was, doesn't live in our city, and he, was, he, he unfortunately, sadly, doesn't know a lot about the Bible. He's a professing Christian and seems earnest about it. And, and he experienced a great tragedy, and, and, and it, it was, how could God allow this to happen in my life? And eventually, at the right time, I hope the right time, I, I said, I don't mean to be mean, I don't mean to be a, a Bible bully, but I've got to tell you that you're asking the wrong questions. You, you, you're totally confused. Let me help you. It's not how could God allow tragedy in your life. Hello? There's this thing called the fall. There's this thing called sin. The effects of sin, which would be judgment on the earth from God, it's just. So the right question is, how could God have allowed you to experience so many great things for so long? That's the big question. Because He's mercy, merciful. And then, you've experienced all this good, that's that's the real amazing thing. Not how in the world could we ever experience suffering. And then to know if God is for you, it all does end well. And this is just a glimmer. This is just a preview. This is just a, a little bit. But it's sure to end well. But we don't even know the... We, 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 we forget the basics. The basics. Bad things happen to good people because there are no good people. Right? But there is a good Savior whose name is Jesus and He's conquered the grave and suffering with it. And we belong to Him and we are assured perfect lives. But not in the here and now. These are just basic things. But I want you to be a missionary. If you already know these things, you can love other people so easily because they're not even asking the right questions. 
And this isn't like deep theology. This is like basics 101. We're just figuring out that the, that the story isn't about a coat. Right? But it's right there. And you can help people so, so profoundly just by these basic things. Now, based upon God is sovereign and He's for His people, how about a third and a fourth? Therefore, live for the glory of God. Therefore, enjoy life. Therefore, go for it. Therefore, live life to its fullest. Because you get it. You understand. You don't have to be paralyzed by, by, by this total confusion, misunderstanding, self-centered consumption, asking all the wrong questions. It's, it's no wonder life is going to be terrible for you. Because it's, in one sense, going to be terrible anyway, eventually. But it's going to be even worse. The greatest tragedy is you don't understand how Jesus solves the problem. And maybe one more thing that I think is secondary. I think we've covered the big points. I think these are the intentions that we're supposed to understand. Uh, but by secondary but important implication, we can learn something here about forgiving people. Joseph was a sinner too. His brother sinned against him. But knowing that sinners sin against other sinners, right? And yet somehow, God is not to blame, but in charge, just helps me to kind of lighten up isn't the right word. I don't know the right word. See things from a different perspective. And say, you know, even what you did, which can be certifiably evil, somehow is going to be used by God for good in the long run. If I can have that kind of perspective, I may not say that to the person I'm going to forgive. <laughs> I may. But it helps, it helps me to see straight. It helps me even, if you will, to be able to forgive that person as God has forgiven me. Tragedy never ends tragically for you if you're in Christ. It changes everything changes everything. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a simple survey of the end of Genesis. We are thankful that life is not as simple as it seems. And we are thankful that you are a God who is for us in Christ, who can work in ways that we can't even fathom for our ultimate good. 
May this not be an excuse for us to sin. May it not be an excuse for us to speak thoughtlessly with others. Help us to season our words with grace and kindness and mercy and patience. But we are thankful that you are a God that that we can't manage and that we can't tame. The God who is none other than the Almighty God, the Sovereign God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Thank you now for our opportunity to eat and drink bread and wine in the name of Jesus, the one who had great tragedy committed against him, and yet it didn't end tragically. In Jesus' name, amen.